and welcome to ACCA Me Talks. I'm your host, Fazila Gopalani, head of ACCA for the Middle East. Just over a year ago, coronavirus or COVID-19 became global news and our lives were transformed. If we are honest, no one really thought that COVID-19 would impact us the way it did and continues to do so. It was somewhat novel and even some say frustrating when we were taught to wash hands again and sanitize, not to mention actually going into lockdown. Some relished the stay at home mandate as a chance to catch up with family, chill out, take things easy, thinking, oh, I don't mind a few weeks of downtime. That was me. Others despaired as their world became a bit more stressful Some might even say dark due to working and schooling from home. And in many cases, loneliness. It's fair to say that one year on, now more than ever, mental well-being is a subject that we simply cannot avoid any longer. Joining me today are Dr. Victoria Mountford, clinical psychologist from Maudsley Health located in Abu Dhabi. Dr. Saliha Afridi, clinical psychologist and managing director of Lighthouse Arabia, located in Dubai, and our very own advocate of the year, Frederick Byrne, who has been instrumental in shining a light on this subject, particularly in relation to ACCA and the immense stress that finance and accounting professionals across the globe have been under since this pandemic hit. I wanted to start with um, Dr. Saliha and Dr. Victoria in setting the scene as to your role and your background. We'll start with Dr. Saliha. Why did you want to become a clinical psychologist? That's too long of an answer for me to give. (laughs) So thank you first for having me. Um, But it's a very uh, loopy, roundabout way that I ended up being a psychologist. So there's a lot of people that actually say that this is what I wanted to do since I was two years old. I'm not one of those people. Um, And I do know for sure that I have always been very curious. I have always been very interested in people. I have always been very interested in stories. I actually did my undergraduate in... um, cultural anthropology. So I've always just been very interested in people and cultures and stories and narratives. Um, And I knew that I wanted to do something that was going to be in the helping profession. It was in my heart. But I actually, when I graduated from my bachelor's degree um, in the US, I ended up actually going into a marketing job and I did that and I was really good at it because um, that also requires you to have some knowledge of human beings. Eventually I realized that I didn't want to sell things to people that they didn't need for so that's when my journey towards just wanting to be in a helping profession and I actually um, started taking prelim classes for dental school because I thought I wanted to be a dentist because I really like dentists and I like going to the dentist. I'm one of those odd people and eventually 
I ended up being um, saying that that wasn't for me because I couldn't hear anything they were saying or talking about. And so I eventually ended up saying, OK, now I think I really want to be a psychologist. And so that's how I ended up being a psychologist. Um, and I moved to the region uh, 12 years ago and have been here since and have loved it since. Thank you very much for having me. It's a real pleasure to be here on this really important um, podcast. Um, so my story actually, um, when I was young, we moved around a lot for my father's job. So um, I also spent a lot of time being curious about people and interested in understanding what motivated people to act in the way they did. And because we were moving so often, I was meeting lots of new people. So I actually went on to study psychology at undergraduate level, um, understood more about mental health and realized that's what I wanted to do. So um, I did my training in the UK at University College London, and I ended up working in London for about 20 years before coming out to the UAE in 2019. So I'm a very recent uh, graduate to the UAE. And of course, I got here and five, five months later, there was a pandemic and we were in lockdown. So of course, lots, lots going on. Equally, I found it to be a fantastic place since I've been here, and it's really exciting to be talking about mental health in this region. Um, what I generally tend to do is work with um, young people and adults experiencing kind of difficulties uh, such as anxiety, depression, obsessive compulsive disorder. However, I also specialize in the treatment of people with eating disorders. Um, that's something that's a real passion of mine. Uh, and I'll work with people um, either on an individual basis or with families to provide the, the best care for them. Fantastic. Thank you so much for the introduction. Um, Frederick, you are somewhat of an ACCA star already. So my question to you is, why is this topic so important to you? Many thanks, Fazila. So in line with ACCA's mandate of wanting to create a super connected community, I felt it was really necessary to raise awareness amongst the students and members in the region alike about the plight of mental health, as well as providing options for anyone who may be suffering in silence. Unfortunately, mental health, it's an area which is often ignored or very much belittled, uh, and cases have undoubtedly increased over the last year due to the COVID crisis and the multiple lockdowns we've all been part of. Uh, mental health awareness started to become more topical in my home country of Ireland via the Darkness into Light morning walk events, which first took place in 2009. Uh, today, this has now expanded to 150 different locations across five continents. Each year, the walk provides an opportunity for people to connect with their local community and to show support for those who have been adversely impacted by suicide. Abu Dhabi and Dubai are two of these locations around the world, at which Darkness into Light events now take place and events have received the attention and praise of the local press. This event really helped bring into focus the crippling effects that mental health issues, such as anxiety, depression, bipolar disorder, and substance abuse have in my home country. Out of 36 European countries, Ireland ranks the third highest. Even in this current day, we are seeing more and more visible initiatives to emphasize the message that it's really okay to not be okay. I also came across an article recently from the Harvard Business Review, which discussed how the big four practice EY in the US launched their WeCare program in 2016 in order to educate their employees about mental health issues and actively encourage them to seek help should they need it. What really helped this particular initiative become a roaring success 
was that it was always sponsored by a member of the senior leadership who would come and also tell their own story with respect to mental health issues that they faced. This sent a really clear message that mental health issues are not toxic and that attendance at these kind of seminars or these events is not a career ender and that's not indicative of weakness in any way, shape or form. Initiatives such as these help break away from the severe and truly unfair stigma attached to suffering from a mental health ailment. So put this way, if your leg was broken, you wouldn't walk or run on it. If you had trouble breathing due to a chest infection, you wouldn't just carry on and hinder and ignore it. Your family would be the first people to drive you straight to A&E or else to your local GP. Now to provide some further context, I'll share some statistics which may shock you. Uh, depression and anxiety have a significant economic impact, where the estimated cost to the global economy is in excess of $1 trillion per year in lost productivity. Also, according to the WHO, depression is now the leading cause of ill health and disability across the globe, with more than 300 million people suffering from it. Most worryingly of all is that the rate of depression has increased by more than 18% since 2005. Uh, from a regional point of view, I was very surprised to find that the UAE, the country where expats are essentially living their best lives and living their dream, actually has the highest regional level of depression, standing at approximately 5.1% of the population, while also ranking high in terms of anxiety, with 4.1% of people admitting to a problem. I don't have the latest statistics to hand, but I found from the Dubai government's website that in 2015, there were in excess of 444,000 cases of depression reported at primary health care centres, while in excess of 354,000 people sought help for anxiety. So that was a lengthy introduction for myself, but I'm hoping that our listeners, be they students or members, uh, will benefit from listening to the valuable insights of both Dr. Victoria and Dr. Saliha, and hopefully this will go some way towards normalising conversations around mental health in general. Frederick, uh, for those insights. So, Dr. Victoria, in light of the fact that we are now over one year into COVID pandemic, have you noticed an uptake in people seeking out support from your clinics? Yes, we definitely noticed um, a significant increase. And I think that this is very understandable. Life, as many of us know it, has changed dramatically that all the things that are important to us, things like social connectedness, routine, structure, they're all really important for well-being. And all of these things have been affected. Suddenly, there is immense uncertainty and unpredictability. Um, and what we know in, in many different countries is that the rules around lockdown and what we're allowed to do, what we can't do, change all um, things like children being able to go to school and then that moving back to online. It's really changing very quickly. So it's really hard for any of us to get any kind of sense of certainty um, or, or control. Um, and I think certain groups such as school-aged children, working mums, people who've lost their jobs, and those who've been separated from their families have faced particular challenges. Um, and as uh, Fred just said, of course, we're a, a very large expat community here. So there are lots of people who've been cut off from a lot of their normal social supports for quite an extended period of time. So I, I think that it's not surprising that we've, we've seen this increase. It's also interesting that when I speak to colleagues across the globe, we've all seen a sharp rise in individuals with eating disorders. And in many ways, the pandemic created the perfect storm for this. So what happened when the pandemic started, when we had lockdown, was we lost control over our daily lives 
at the same time as receiving multiple messages about the importance of exercise um, and not gaining any quarantine weight. Unsurprising that for some, this led to an extreme focus on weight and eating control. Thank you, uh, Dr. Victoria, for those insights. So, Dr. Saliha, given that we would not ignore a broken leg or a chest infection and would actively seek out medical attention, why do you feel individuals ignore mental health issues? It's so complex as to why and how people can actually seek help. And if, if I'm speaking about being in the Middle East, now that I've been here for the last 13 years, um, and really, I, was, I would probably say at the inception of mental health awareness and ideas back in 13 years ago, there was really five of us, I think, in this country. Um, and I... And I would love to say that it's because there is stigma and that's it. And all we have to do is break down the stigma. But it actually is quite a lot more complicated than that. A lot of that has to do with our internal narratives. Of course, the stigma, the fear, the shame associated with seeking um, mental health support. There is a lot of stigma. For sure, that is one of the main reasons why people don't seek help. But I would say that there's a lot of other reasons, including, um, you know, this idea of um, the people not having awareness. You know, I don't, I don't know about you guys, but I've been depressed before. And I know I'm a psychologist and I didn't see the forest for the trees, I would say. I didn't know I was in it when I was in it. And so a lot of times when you're just so, um, when it's so close to you and you're in it and you're in the thick of it, you actually don't know that you're, you're in that low state. So a lack of awareness about what mental health, mental illness is, what does depression look like? What is anxiety? A lot of times people have lived with that their whole life. You know, so they actually don't even know that this is not normal. They just think that this is just how life is. So a lack of awareness would be another thing. Um, obviously, there's a sense of distrust, especially in this part of the world, where who am I going to go to? How am I going to go talk to this person? Can I trust this person? Can I trust the credentials of this person? Um, you know, I've heard so many horror stories about so many people actually just, you know, having mavericks be, you know, treating them um, because they went online and they didn't go to someone who was licensed or they didn't go to someone who actually had the right credentials. So there's a lot of distrust, which creates a sense of hopelessness that, you know what, no one can actually help me. You know, no one is actually going to be able to solve this for me. And to be honest, you know, therapy is not this magic type of, you know, you a broken leg, it might be a little bit easier to fix. With therapy, there's a lot of chemistry that happens between a therapist and a client and a psychiatrist and a patient, right? And so maybe you don't get on with that first therapist, but maybe the second one you actually will get on with and they will understand you and they will be able to see the issues uh, and be able to name them and there will be rapport and there will be trust. So there is a science to therapy, but there's definitely an art and a relationship that actually carries that science through. So sometimes you just need to find that right click with that person. I also think in this part of the world, um, money and insurance, just the practicalities of things. I, I know lots of people that want to go to see a therapist. 
you know, but they can't afford it. It's expensive, you know, this, and we, we, uh, businesses here in the UAE or in this part of the world, they have their own rents and fees and licensing and everything else that they have to pay to make sure that they're, you know, up to speed with all sorts of legalities. And so it actually, the cost of living is high. So in order to get good doctors here is high, et cetera, et cetera. So the cost of getting these types of treatments is expensive and insurance for many people does not cover that. And then I would say that even for people who have the insurance and people who have the money, there's a wait list for the qualified people, you know? And, and so, all right, I'm ready to get on. And so they pick up the phone and they say, okay, fine, today I'm gonna call and I'm gonna start working on this anxiety. And then they're told that they have to wait four to six weeks before they can see someone. And it's just because there is a shortage of clinicians in the UAE slash this part of the world. So I think, yes, for sure, there is socialization, there's stigma, but then there's just the day-to-day -day things that are happening that I think it's just, um, that makes it a little bit harder than when you can see the broken bone and you can see the broken leg. It, it's sometimes not that simple for a lot of people with mental health issues. And I would say lastly, that a lot of times the parents that are struggling, they will have children that are struggling also as a result of whatever their issues might be. And the parent will actually say, you know what? I'll get on with it. I'll figure it out. I'll read a book. I'll, you know, take a course. Let me send my child to therapy because my child is more important. So let me just get them into help before I take care of my, and I can manage my own. So that system actually never regulates because the child is only um, going to be as steady and stable as the parents are able to. So it actually kind of is counterintuitive to do it that way, but that's kind of how a lot of people in their sort of desperate states do it. So those are just some of the reasons why people don't access therapy as readily as they would physical treatment for physical illnesses and ailments. Great. So if we could just ask you both then, global pandemics aside, uh, what would you say are the root causes of mental health issues? So mental health disorders are really complex and there is never just only one cause. And it's also really important to say that we never blame anyone for having mental health problems. Um, but we can think about it as a combination of different factors. Um, and those will include genetic, biological, psychological and environmental factors. So, for example, um, with many mental health problems, there are genetic links. So if a parent has a mental health problem, you are at, uh, have a greater vulnerability to developing a mental health problem. It doesn't mean that that is automatically going to happen. It's really important to stress that. There may be biological factors. For example, we know that um, there might be a chemical imbalance in the brain. There might be um, other features going on that also contribute to someone developing mental health problems. And of course, who we are as people and our experiences in life have a really important role. So for example, if we are someone with a tendency to be more perfectionistic, um, to have low self-esteem, to be more sensitive, uh, we might be more vulnerable to developing difficulties. And of course, the things that happen in our lives, so whether that's bullying, loss, abuse, stress, managing day-to-day -day living, 
and all the messages we get from the um, outside world. And of course, now we know that social media has a huge influence for many of us leading to um, kind of comparing, thinking about how we should. And all of these pressures um, might lead to someone developing mental health difficulties. And what's really crucial is the timing and the interplay between these factors in terms of how a person might be affected. So it might be that um, a particular event happening at a particular time, for example, if you're a young person and you move to a new school at the same time you're doing your exams um, and mum and dad are having some marital difficulties, that might be a lot of things going on at the same time. So again, how things happen and when they happen is also crucial. Before I answer that question as to what are the main issues that I am seeing in the UAE right now, I would like to say that for the Lighthouse Arabia, we did not see a significant increase in the number of calls that we were getting during the pandemic. We did see a lot of the corporations reaching out to do more work for their employees. That there was a spike in the interest for corporations to actually put mental health as their agenda. But these issues have been here. And I remember actually October 2019, and I literally I've actually spoken to people within sort of you know health uh, care professionals that there is something happening I can feel it the air is pregnant something is about to happen there were so many phone calls that we got in October 2019 this is way before the pandemic actually switched on um, at least it made its visit to the UAE I would say so these issues have been long-standing and they have gotten progressively worse, I would say, in the last decade. And with a spike, I would say, within 2018 and 2019. And so 2020 just sort of compounded what was already there for us. What I did notice in 2020 was that the intensity with which people were calling and the urgency with which people were calling, so maybe we were getting 500 calls a day, we still got 500, maybe 550 calls a day, but with that panic, I think the intensity of the people's issues was a whole lot more. And so I just wanna say that, that we didn't necessarily see a significant spike in the phone calls, but we did see a significant spike in the people's intensity and urgency with which they wanted to be seen. Now, what are some of the disorders that we have seen? Um, you know, COVID, pre-COVID, um, and that is um, anxiety disorders, actually quite significantly in the UAE, um, mood disorders such as major depressive disorder or bipolar disorder, substance use disorders like addictions, alcohol, nicotine, prescription medication, post-traumatic stress syndrome or disorder. And this can be complex PTSD or post-traumatic stress disorder due to some tragic type of event that has taken place, which they haven't processed. Acute stress disorder, whether it's a job loss, whether it was a traffic accident, whether it was a death in the family, we've seen a lot of acute stress disorder reactions as well as sleep disorders. Other mental health concerns that we saw were loneliness, 
absolutely significant. This was pre-COVID, by the way. I don't think COVID actually made people less lonely or more lonely. We had Minister of Happiness and Minister of Loneliness in different parts of the world, uh, even before COVID had happened. This just, again, compounded some certain things for certain people. I would say burnout is absolutely an issue that I have seen so much of, and it's progressively getting worse and worse. Uh, domestic abuse and child abuse is something that we see quite a lot, and that is an issue that we saw a lot more of, I would say, in, um, I would just say, domestic sort of um, struggles, perhaps not full-blown abuse, but just domestic uh, unrest. Um, that was quite, that sort of went up during COVID, and then relationship problems. So I think these people, um, these types of issues are something that we have seen for the last 10 years um, and we continue to see during COVID, but just turned up a notch. And following on from that then, what would you say are some symptoms indicative of mental health issues and are there any particular warning signs that individuals or family members can really look out for? So um, I think the big warning for an individual is the change in their personality and their interests. So how are they feeling when they wake up in the morning? You know, if someone's really struggling to get the energy to get out of bed, if they're not enjoying the things they used to enjoy, if they're not doing the things that they used to enjoy, um, that for me is, is the really big warning sign. And I guess how that might sort of translate is that we often see a change in our thinking. So when people are depressed or when they were anxious or when they're experiencing other mental health problems, we find that they get many more negative thoughts than usual around those issues. So if someone's mood is lowering, those thoughts are going to be much more hopeless, much more negative. The thoughts will be a lot more worry thoughts or what we call what if thoughts. So what if this happens? What if I can't do this? What if I make a mistake? So I think looking out for a change in your thinking is really critical. The other thing that we see when people um, experience mental health problems um, is a lot of changes in physical health as well um, or, or physical issues. So there will be signs like loss of appetite, disrupted sleep, feeling very fatigued, feeling much more irritable than usual, um, feeling more restless, fidgeting, worrying a lot. So actually as well, when we were talking earlier about how can we recognize mental health problems in ourselves, I think it's equally important to look out for those physical signs that might give you an inkling that something is wrong. I, I agree 100% with everything that Victoria said. The only thing that I would add to that is that um, we need to keep three things in mind. The frequency, the intensity, and the duration of those symptoms. Because the symptoms that Victoria, <laughs> Victoria said, I feel like that every Thursday. And so just because I feel like that every Thursday doesn't mean I have a mental health problem or mental disorder. Um, it could just be that I'm having one of those days and I need to unwind. And, you know, so it really does uh, the, the, the frequency, intensity and duration of these symptoms actually does matter and is a major uh, 
criteria of meeting those diagnostic disorders. So a lot of times what I see people is that they start to freak out because they had three bad days or they had three sad days and they just feel low for, you know, maybe four days or five days. And it might be as a result of maybe they had a difficult interaction with someone they love or, you know, maybe they just had an encounter with their boss that wasn't very pleasant. And this is pretty normal. So I don't want to pathologize these normal ups and downs of life. You will experience, maybe even you might feel like, you know what, I just don't feel like going out. Your friends call you, hey, let's go out for dinner and you don't feel like going out. But now if that continues to happen over a course of two weeks, three weeks, now I would say that you need to pay attention to this for more often than not. So what do I mean by frequency, intensity, duration? You want to look for anything that Victoria said, the changes in your appetite. Are you eating too much? Are you eating too little? Are you sleeping too much? Are you sleeping too little? Are you able to focus? Are you able to stay constant? You know, are you able to concentrate? Do you have these feelings of hopelessness for more often than not for uh, every day for about two weeks? This is what we are looking for when we talk about changes and fluctuations. So look at the frequency. How long has this been going on? Is the duration? Is this happening more often than not for most days than not over the course of two-ish weeks? Um, and that's when you actually say that, yeah, this is an issue here and I need to get help. And I would say that a lot of times, you know, when I'm having maybe three, four bad days, I might Google WebMD and I'll, all of a sudden I have like 13 diagnoses that I didn't never heard of. And, you know, and, and maybe you don't want to do that. If you really are concerned about your mental health, get a professional opinion and get a professional diagnosis. And, you know, at, at the Lighthouse, we actually do emotional well-being checks, which is a 30-minute appointment where you do a well-being check, like a dental check, but doesn't mean that you're going to engage in therapy, but just where am I at here? What's going on? It's an assessment. Am I doing okay? That would be something to consider. And I would also encourage, because one out of four people, that means 25% of the world's population, as you already mentioned, is struggling with a mental health problem. I really would encourage people to get trained in mental health first aid. Now, mental health first aid actually teaches you in a 10-hour course, so it's quite rigorous and it's quite long. Um, it's evidence-based. It comes out of Australia where you actually learn all the signs and symptoms of depression and anxiety and suicidality and substance abuse and psychosis. And, and so you actually see, okay, this is what it looks like. And this is what I should say about it. So you learn how to be a first responder because a lot of times people will say, man, I'm having a really bad day. And we're like, oh God, I don't know what to say. I don't want to make it worse. Um, I, what should I say? And then you end up saying nothing or you end up saying something like, you know what? Well, look on the bright side. At least uh, you have a job. I don't know. We end up saying something that actually is quite invalidating and dismissive. And so what mental health first aid does is actually teaches you to respond with sensitivity and care to people that might be struggling. But it also teaches you how to detect 
some of these nuanced ways, you know, where a person just looks a little bit more disheveled or they just turn up to meetings late when they're actually never late or they're starting to cancel last minute when they never canceled before. These would be some of those signs that you start to look out for. And we would never really pay attention to these. But once you become a mental health first aider, you start to look at some of these signs and it actually teaches you the criteria on what actually is important and what is not. So um, frequency, intensity, and duration is what to look for. And then consider getting trained in mental health first aid for proper response training. Dr. Salia, for someone whose culture may have negative views towards mental health issues, how would you suggest that they go about seeking help? So this is um, this is a tricky uh, conversation to have, I think, with people that, that are in your life who just don't see this as an issue. So I would, you know, for me, raising awareness is key. Um, you know, informing the people in your life as to some of the things that you might be struggling with first, being actually quite aware of your own issues would be important. For sure, there is a stigma here. Um, a lot of people will actually use religion as a way to dismiss people with health issues. Spirituality, religion is a protective factor. It does help you in your mental health um, and in achieving mental health. However, it is not the end all and cure all. And there are some neurochemical imbalances at times that actually you do need some, some support in that. So for those people, I would, I would actually say that if you're an adult, don't necessarily seek the validation and understanding of people in your life. You need to be sure that this is something you need, but seeking the support and validation of the grandmothers and the uncles and the aunties and the mothers, they are coming from a different world. They're coming from a different generation. They're coming from a different time and they might never see eye to eye with you. And you need to just be okay with that. You have a very different level of um, approach that you are going to take to your mental health. And I think being okay with that within yourself is going to be very important. And so what I would say, I would say go seek support. And if you are in a position where you can't afford it and you now need to convince your parents or you need to convince someone else in your life, there's actually a lot of free things that you can actually access. I also say that, you know, this has worked for some of the people, at least the people that I've worked with is that I would why don't we watch this webinar together on mental health or why don't we watch this documentary together on mental health because it might just be a, a point need more awareness and education and maybe they would be able to see your pain and your suffering if you were able to just educate them on this is what depression is and this is what anxiety is um, and there's so many documentaries online right now and being able to say that I'm struggling with something like this and I need your support I don't need you to understand but I need you to be with me as I go through this journey and I think that might be a conversation that you might understand it but having you with me to me so educate and ask for support as you need it so this in mind dr victoria what do you feel needs to be done in order to normalize attitudes towards mental health issues i think that we really need to continue to have conversations like this one today where we can speak openly about mental health without judgment what we're really doing is, uh, you know, increasing education so people understand mental health. 
because often difficulties come when people don't understand something and they're fearful of it and what it means uh, you know in a common question or a common fear is have I failed in some way as a parent or, or why is my family member suffering in this way so we need to raise that awareness and acceptance of mental health problems and I think what's really important is for us to understand that mental health is important for all of us in the same way that physical health is. So we need to work to having those uh, on a level, so seeing them both as equally important. And I guess one of the things or some of the things that we've tried to do at Mortley Health is raise that awareness within the region on a number of different levels. So reducing stigma, improving access to high quality mental health care. So some of the things that we've been doing are uh, running kind of webinars and, and pre-COVID, going and talking to schools, students, universities, um, also providing training for medical students at local universities and running kind of webinars open for the general public. And also what we do a lot of, you know, is communicating via social media and also running an annual conference for clinicians in the region so that we can talk about mental health, we can raise awareness but also, I think, to make, uh, pick up on the points that Saliha was making earlier, it's making sure that when people do have or do recognise that they have some difficulties, that we have the services and the qualified clinicians offering evidence-based care right there ready. Because it's fantastic if we raise awareness and people want to seek help. But if the help's not available or we don't have the structures and the support staff in the right way, um, then that's really disappointing. Um, so I think what we need to do is work at multiple levels in multiple places to normalise attitudes to mental health issues. So, Dr. Saliha, for an employee who is facing issues such as anxiety disorders or depression, how should they let their manager know? And also, would this not be risky in so far as the manager may feel that the employee may not be able to handle pressure? I don't think you should tell someone at work that you're struggling unless that person is a safe person or the company actually has some understanding of mental health issues. You know, there are some companies who do give mental uh, mental well uh, well-being days and there are companies who do have these webinars about wellness and mental health. They do have insurance coverage for mental health issues. So if you are within a company where this is part of the culture where mental health, mental health awareness, mental illness, depression, anxiety are part of the lexicon of the, you know, of the company and the culture. I'd say, yeah, there should be some safe people that are identified within that company. It would probably be an our personnel that you could actually go to, uh, maybe take a leave of absence, maybe, you know, whatever the policies are within that company. But I think the issue is not about the going to someone in the company. I would start from the top down. I would actually go to the employers and say, are you creating a safe enough space for people to come and have these conversations with you? Are you really caring about your people? Are you really seeing your people? Are you trained in mental health first aid to be able to detect some of these things in people? Are you able, to, do you have policies in place that actually cater to like this and how do you you know um sort of um bring that person back online once they've been away on leave these are all policies and considerations that a company needs to have 
it would almost be reckless to say an employee should go and talk to someone uh, because that person could get fired if that company doesn't have an understanding or a culture of these types of conversations. And now this person is depressed, they have a mental health issue, and they don't have a job. So I actually wouldn't want to say that to people. I actually would want them to say that find a way to I mean, if you are struggling within that company, I would say take your leave. I know we'd like to save our leave for vacation, but you know what? Right now you need to take care of your health. So I would say take your leave, gain some strength. And then I would say be an advocate within that company to see if you can start to nudge some of these conversations or create some of these platforms, create some of these support networks within that company because you felt so alone. Maybe there's something you can do for other people within that company so they don't feel so alone. Okay, and to move on now to potentially sensitive topic, uh, and that would be medication and medication for treatments of the various mental health issues that have been discussed. Uh, talking about, say, for example, antidepressants, they're often you know, termed to be happy pills, which is, again, another stigma-laden term. So what exactly are the benefits of taking these kind of medications and should patients be any way apprehensive with regards to taking them or are there any adverse side effects that would be inhibitive? So I think that everybody um, can have different views on medication and different concerns. Um, as a psychologist, I don't prescribe medication. Um, that's a psychiatrist's role. But often we work together with psychiatrists to think about which patients will benefit from medication. So I would say that it's always important to discuss this thoroughly with your doctor. I think there are quite a lot of myths around medication, which can sometimes um, make people more anxious about considering medication. And then there are other concerns people may have about what the side effects may be, um, whether the medication will be addictive, or will they end up feeling quite cut off or numb from their feelings. So I think it's really important that you meet with your psychiatrist and you have an honest and open conversation about your concerns and your psychiatrist will be able to help you weigh up the pros and cons of medication for you. It's always an individual um, decision. Sometimes people will experience side effects that they find intolerable and we may need to try more than one medication before we find the right one for them. So for example, if someone is experiencing a moderate to severe depression, Antidepressants are vital in lifting a patient's mood enough that they are able to use the therapy and other helpful strategies. So I think I would conclude by saying always talk to a psychiatrist if your psychologist suggests medication and they can help you make an informed decision. I think it's important to also note that it isn't just working adults who need support. We've seen that students and the younger generation also need support. So let me ask Dr. Saliha one final piece of advice. What treatment options are available for anyone seeking help and when should they ideally seek help? So I, this is something that, you know, I hear often. It's like, well, what do kids have to worry about and why would kids be depressed? But the, the, the fact is that one out of five young people 
are struggling with a mental health problem as of right now. And it, neuropsychiatric issues are the number one cause of disability amongst young people as well globally. So it is an issue, it is happening, it is happening quite significantly, and we need to keep an eye out and we need to know what to look for because it might look a little bit different in young people. It might look a little bit different in um, adolescent boys versus adolescent girls. So we do need to know the nuances of this and we don't necessarily have the time to go into the details of that, but it would be very important for parents and educators and anyone that is around young people to be able to be a to see the signs and the symptoms of things like depression, anxiety, and very much um, um, addictions. I see a lot of gaming addiction or social media addictions, like you know, electronics addictions, a poor sleep as a result of using technology till the wee hours of the night, a lot of academic pressures, et cetera, et cetera. So this is, is a real thing and it's happening in this part of the world. Eating disorders, as Victoria mentioned, have spiked. Uh, people's body image, people's self-image have really been compromised. Um, a lot more, I would say, because now they're staring at themselves all day long in Zoom. And so that actually has impacted people wanting to get, like, get different kinds of things done to their face and to their body. It's actually quite, I mean, I'm laughing now because this is something that we think about all day long as we're looking at ourselves like, oh man, do I still look like this? But never mind. Um, I would say that it's really important for people to be aware to be able to see the signs and symptoms of these issues and then be able to get the treatment. And the only way we can do that is if we raise awareness, we have these types of conversations and we actually are open to the idea that everyone at any age can be struggling with these types of issues. Whether there are three-year-old all the way to 73-year-old and in between, uh, people are suffering and they feel lonely and they don't feel seen and we need to find a way to be able to uh, reach those people and to be able to have them feel seen and heard. Um, I absolutely agree with everything that Saliha has just said and I was thinking particularly about my work with young people with eating disorders um, and their families because it can create so much distress in the whole family system. And particularly, we talk about the importance of early intervention. So getting help as soon as possible when you begin to notice that something might not be right. Sometimes people can wait and hope that things will improve. Often this isn't the case and the individual can feel even more lonely and hopeless. And in fact, problems just begin to pile up. One final thing that I just wanted to mention was to recommend the Middle East Eating Disorder Association, which is MEDA, www media.me and that has lots of information about eating disorders in the Middle East region on it and also an opportunity to have a free brief consultation with someone about your difficulties and where to get help. If you are listening to this podcast and you are worrying about your eating difficulties or your body image or you're worrying about your son or your daughter um, that's a really good first port of call to get some more information. I'd like to take this opportunity to thank both of you for attending our podcast today. It's fair to say that we've all dealt with a huge shift in both professional and personal lives. Lines are blurred, stress levels are elevated, and mental health issues are on the rise. This is no longer a topic to be afraid of, 
to all the listeners, if you feel in any way you need support, I actively encourage you to reach out and take the support you need. Now is the time to open up and ask for help. Needing support for mental health issues is no longer a taboo. You've heard from two of the region's experts, Lighthouse Arabia and Maudsley Health, and they can be found easily online and have a fantastic team of professionals waiting to support you. Frederick, thank you for helping us shed light on this important topic. I know it's not easy for individuals to talk about this subject, and you've stepped up to help break the silence. Thank you. Thank you, everyone, for joining me today. Until next time.